Welcome to Hit Submit, a podcast about trying really hard. I'm your host, Claire Brooks, and I'm a writer, producer, and filmmaker. I know firsthand just how hard it is to bring big, bold visions to life, and it all starts with the confidence to hit submit. Each week, I interview a creator, storyteller, or artist, and we dive deep into their careers, projects, and strategies for both personal and professional success. On today's episode, we've got a great conversation with Kit Steinkellner, a TV writer and playwright based here in LA. Enjoy. So everyone, I have Kit Steinkellner here with us today. Um, Kit is, I love this, an American playwright and screenwriter. The combination of those words, American playwright and screenwriter together, just sounds literary. (laughs) Like it sounds really fantastic. So congratulations, Wikipedia thinks you're great. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Um, you are known for face, for Facebook Watch's series, Sorry for Your Loss, which we'll chat about, as well as your award-winning comic, Quince, which I have lots of questions about. Um, you previously worked on uh, Amazon's uh, Z, The Beginning of Everything, and I'm obsessed with Zelda Fitzgerald, so we're going to ask some questions about that as well. Yes. And yours is all around fantastic. Everyone, I know Kit because um, we both were part of an organization in, here in LA called Cartel, which is fabulous, which I miss daily, especially in light of the current situation and how we brought people together. And I am so grateful that that organization connected us. So thank you for joining us here today on Hit Submit. Oh, it is my pleasure. By the way, I feel like especially in this catastrophic situation we currently find ourselves in, I bet we could get the band back together. I bet we could get people on Zoom to do like weird performance art on Zoom. I I think we could. I think we could. I mean like... It's kind of perfect now to do something like the living room tour, but yeah. do it over Zoom and send it, like stream it live mm. to people's homes because that's where everyone is these days. It's like, am yeah. I in the bedroom or the living room or the dining room? So many choices. No, truly. It's been kind of, um, and it's just, look, it's just really truly the first week in America where we're all um, on lockdown or where we all should be on lockdown. If we have jobs that let us lock down, that's where we should be. Um, but it's just been amazing to see uh, the art people are making virtually, these like Zoom dance parties I participated in. I hear about people trying to do immersive theater on Zoom. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what, what continues to pop up. Me too. I mean, I read some very uh, interesting article about how this could potentially change, this situation could change our world going forward, um, where perhaps people enjoy these activities so much that this is the start of something for our century. Uh, this yeah. idea of, of beaming into each other's homes and wanting to have that that access to each other. I'm excited. I mean, I'm horrified, mostly, but I try to be excited when I find the glimmers of hopes. Um, so my first question, because I just didn't know this, you grew up in Santa Barbara? No. Uh, so uh, um, there are a few things on my Wikipedia that are, are wrong. Um, I, uh, well, I grew up in LA. Yeah. Uh, and I moved to Santa Barbara when I was 10. So I spent middle school and high school in Santa Barbara. So, so it's, it's half right. Um, I am, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I spent my child childhood in LA and my formative adolescent years in Santa Barbara. So. Amazing. I mean, I, I haven't been to Santa Barbara. Um, I have some close friends who went to college there. It's meant to be gorgeous. The idea of living or going to school in that part of the world seems a little bit like living in a utopia. What was it like going, growing up there? Oh, good question. Um, it, I think it was a great place to be a teen, especially a teen with the driver's license, because when you're feeling moody and angsty, you can drive to the beach and just like stare at the horizon and think about, I don't know, just like all the existential thoughts you have when you're 17 years old and reading um, Crime and Punishment and The Stranger back to back, you can do that um, on the beach in Santa Barbara. Um, you know, it, how, how was it? Um, I kind of think I would have been like moody and weepy wherever I'd grown up. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if the sun did me that much good, but it was, it was beautiful. Um, there are people I, I met there, especially in high school, that I still love very much. My uh, my high school improv team. Well, we were going to try to do um, a, a real in-person reunion, but again, we'll probably say this 8,000 times talking to each other that will, maybe we'll do it on Zoom. Maybe that'll, that will wait. But um, I, I loved that. I, I loved just like, I don't know, I got to be like scrappy and like make weird theater and make weird art and just, um, 
I don't know. I, 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 it was, it was really talk about necessity being the mother of invention. I, I think I was just like a real, I was both like weepy and annoying, but also like intensely like driven and creative. I think I was like a little bit of a mix of like Tracy Flick from election. And, um, I always forget Jason Schwartzman. Oh, Max something from Rushmore. What's Max's last name? Rushmore. Anyway, I think I was, a picture. I get that. <laughs> Maybe the worst of those two characters, a little Joe March, I don't know. Um, but um, like, think of the most like annoying traits each of those literary characters have, slash cinematic characters. And I, I, I had them in spades. But um, but yeah, I'm just kind of like always like like crying and making things, I guess. So wait, I have to ask if you come yeah, from sure. a family of creatives, where I do, yes, are writers. Your sister is an illustrator and a comic book writer as well. Yeah, yeah. And your brother also has written a YA novel. He's written a couple. He's, he's, written a couple. he's a TV writer as well. Everyone in my family is a professional writer in my immediate nuclear family. It's bananas. So what was that like growing up? <laughs> what was that energy? Well, yeah. So when we were kids, we were all, like, we weren't professionals. We were just kids. But my parents, it's so interesting. Um, my parents really instilled, like, work ethic. It was, uh, it, and I think in a way that, um, I'm not saying only artistic parents can, but I think, I think there's a certain kind of Hollywood work ethic that maybe non-Hollywood parents don't understand where it's, you can just quote unquote fail for 10 years, 15 years, and it's normal. It's not, not having IMDb credit for that long isn't um, a referendum on your worth as, as a writer, as an artist. And I think, but what is a referendum is are you consistently working? Are you taking feedback gracefully? Um, are you from one script to the next, or <clears throat> if you're a director or an actor from one project to the next, are you looking for ways to both be a better individual artist and a better member of the community? Just all those things. Um, I'm, not sh I'm not saying if your parent um, is, um, I don't know, a professor or a doctor that they can't instill that in you, but I think my parents, um, because they, again, they, they were, they've written in many mediums, but film and television are two of them. Um, I think they understood how to specifically give like really specific nitty gritty Hollywood work ethic advice, which has served me and my siblings so well. But we were just like super creative. We were just, again, we were always all making things. And um, again, like I, I said, my brother and I did improv. He was a freshman when I was a senior. So we only did one year of improv together. But like, I wrote a play that year and cast in it. Like we were, we were doing stuff together then. And then when I was um, in, I guess I just graduated undergrad, my sister was getting into illustrating in high school. And so we started doing a web comic together. Now my brother and my sister are doing things together. Like we've always kind of like cross pollinated and, and, and worked together. And again, my parents were writing partners for decades. I think that was, I think you don't always realize, I think there's lessons you realize you're learning at home and lessons you don't realize you're learning. I think a lesson maybe we didn't realize we were learning is if you're like-minded and love each other, it makes sense to try to work together in an artistic fashion and see what happens. So I love that. I mean, I've recently um, become very obsessed, I suppose, with Billie Eilish. It's funny because my little sister a couple of years ago was like, you should really check her out. And I love her. And I didn't get it. It was like this moody girl from Highland Park that I just didn't understand. And then um, I watched some TV special with her and saw that the, the creative relationship she had with her brother, Finn, and how they work together to produce so much great work and then learning that both her mother and her father are also in the industry i think you're onto something which is that um when you have artistic parents or creative parents i think there might just be like a certain um maybe exposure to the possibility of failing that you can then pass on to your kids and not saying like you're going to be a failure but more like hey this is what comes with trying to be an actress, with trying to be a writer, with trying to be a, a novelist or an artist, is that not everybody's going to love everything you do first time around. You could be working for 10, 15 years before you have your moment, and that's okay. I agree, and I think it's both a reframing of failure and also reframing of success. I think success is taking, again, to my earlier point, taking feedback gracefully and just becoming a stronger, better version of yourself. And then, I mean, not to jump ahead too much, but then when you're a staff writer um, or a low-level writer on a TV show, I, I mean, look, does you probably got hired because your script was stellar. You got probably hired because you were great in that meeting. 
But the thing, the staying power that you're going to have is, is taking feedback gracefully and, and being able to calibrate and recalibrate and be light on your feet and, and learn and adjust to the um, ecosystem of the room. Uh, and that's, that's not the same thing as writing a brilliant script. That's not the same thing as being, you know, charming and personable. That's a, that's a skill you work on when, when, when you're failing. So I mean, like, I, I think by failing, you become a person that's, um, that not only gets their foot in the door and gets that, that first shot, but that um, is able to replicate their success because they're a great human being that, that people want to work with time and time again, I, I think. I love that. And, you know, I, I, we're going to dive into like TV yeah. specific stuff, and this is probably an angle to get us there. Um, but let's talk about this notes process, because I think that's one of the hardest things as a growing creative of any stripe, which is put yourself out there. You put your heart on the page, on the canvas, on the stage, whatever it is. And now there's this opportunity for people to give you some feedback. What skills, attitudes, mindset, what, what does one need to have to be better at receiving notes? That's question one. And two, when do you know not to take a note? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the answer is, I, I, I think I'll, I, I, I can give two answers, but I feel like it is one answer. I think there's a tuning fork inside of you. And I think it hums when the feedback is right on and correct. And I think it just kind of is silent and you kind of feel this like cold, dead thing inside of you when it's just, when you're talking to the wrong person, you know? And so look, it's getting yourself, I mean, several things. I, mean, I think you have to continue to be patient with yourself and learn yourself and know if you're someone that needs to put a script away for a couple of months before you can be clear headed enough to really hear what people have to say about it. Um, so making sure you're in a position where you can hear anything at all. I mean, the thing about, and that's not my original metaphor. I think, it, I think it was Cheryl Strayed said it in one of her dear sugar advice columns, but I, I it really resonated for me. Um, pun intended because of a tuning fork. And I just, I, I, I loved it, but it's, it, it's, if I think in order to hear that voice inside of you, whether it's saying, yes, 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 this person's right on, or I think this person's onto something. I'm not quite sure they're, it's exactly right, but there's something there or no, this person's just, this is not my guy or girl or person. They're not the right audience member for this piece. I think in order to even be able to hear any of that, you have to be in kind of a, um, not not disconnected, but you have to you have to be in a. Well, look if you're if if something if you put your heart in the page, and it's still so new and fresh and raw, I feel like you're done with all those vibrations as well. I think you've got to get yourself to a place where you um, can just be calm and neutral. Also, I think just talking about reframing things, something I I used to. Um, work at this performing arts camp in the summer, I taught writing and something I tell the kids when get when giving feedback is it's like a fragile newborn, this thing you've just created, it can't hold its head up yet. And so you want to both find people that can give feedback that is, that is kind and honest and respectful, but ultimately support it, that is supporting the thing that you, that you are trying to make versus just trying to make into the thing they would have made or whatever. So I think it's, it's both finding the right people to, to get, feedback from, and that can be trial and error. It's figuring out how to get yourself into a place with, um, and building that muscle of, 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 of being able to be, um, open and calm and receptive. And then, yeah, once, once you're in, I think once you have the right people and once you're in the right place, yeah, it's a matter of just hearing piece by piece. And sometimes, you know, something on the surface will feel wrong to, to me. Like, I'm, I'm like this, they, they call it the note behind the note, right? Where it's like the note itself, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, let's say, I don't know. Um, let's say it's Romeo and Juliet and they're like, set it in space. And I'm like, that that feels wrong. But, but, but the idea of taking Romeo and Juliet and setting it somewhere else, that actually is resonating with me. Something's interesting. What if it's the 1950s and we've got this, you know, it's like this gang of Polish teens and this gang of, Puerto Rican teens and it's the beats of Romeo and Juliet and what if I'm Stephen Sondheim and I'm writing the songs and all of a sudden you West Side Story so again it may be Stephen Sondheim and again I'm just totally making this up like he hears like Romeo and Juliet but in space and he's like no, no I don't think so but there is something there um 
but I, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's sort of, that's kind of my, my, my three pronged answer to the question is just getting feedback from the right people, which is why, by the way, when you're selling something, it's so important to really grill that producer. Even if you feel like you're nobody, you have no IMDb credits. I think it is so, so crucial that you really feel like that producer, that star, whoever feels like a creative match, because if they're the wrong match, it doesn't matter how fancy they are. I don't think that thing succeeds. You really do have to find your tribe and your people, um, working on yourself, figuring out how, how to be, you know, both able to take feedback calmly and gracefully and also really reminding yourself at all times, two things. Um, everybody gets feedback. Everybody, everybody gets feedback. And the fancier you get, the more feedback you get because the more money is on the line. Um, and uh, that's very and, true. And the, and the feedback is, is, is in service of making the thing better. I mean, I'd say unless someone is like a psychopath and like just trying to torture you, which is very few people, most people are just excited. They're like producers, non-writing producers, actors, everyone giving you, or just like an audience member, everyone, and it took me a while to learn this because I would ever feel like, oh God, they hate my thing. They have a huge problem with it, whatever. Personal. And, yeah, it felt personal. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, but when I give feedback, I'm excited. I hope I do have that silver bullet. I hope I do have the right answer. Like what a joy it would be to help this thing come to life and help this thing reach its potential and just be like a small part of the journey. And once I started reframing and looking at feedback as especially critical, intense feedback as people just genuinely being excited about being a part of the journey and hoping they can help, um, it became a lot easier to take. So, um, I feel like I kind of was like a bit of a pinball there kind of like dinging it all, all kinds of weird different places, but with hope that answered your question. It does. It does. And, um, to continue in this sort of TV world, I'm, yeah. I'm curious, how did you get your start in this space? Did you do the traditional like writer's assistant path or did you forge your own way? And what are the pros and cons to both? Yeah, um, it's a great question. By the way, if I had been, if a writer's assistantship had presented itself, I would have taken it. I just didn't quite know how to, how to get there. And by the time I actually, I, I was only offered that job once. I'll, I'll get to that. I'll, I'll build to that. Um, but it was because it's kind of, funny. Um, I hope I can say, I, I, at this point, I probably can tell you the story. Um, basically, no, no, I, I, it was weird. I, so I, I wrote a, do you know, I mean, I guess I can define what a spec is versus a pilot. Some people know, some people don't. Basically, up until I would say maybe 10 years ago, um, if you wanted to be a TV writer in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up until the early 2000s, you would write a spec, which is an existing episode of a show. So for example, if you were a comedy writer in the 90s, you would write a Seinfeld. If you were a drama writer, you would write a West Wing, something that was still on the air at the time you were writing. And um, then things changed in the mid-aughts. Uh, I think people just got tired of reading like a hundred Seinfelds or like a thousand West Wings. So the idea of, of writing an original pilot became you're writing a sample. And also this is the time, at, you know, things were starting to grow. They hadn't exploded yet. We weren't like at like the 500 plus TV shows now, but we were probably at the 300 plus range. Um, and so a pilot could both be your sample and also potentially sell it. Um, because again, back in the, for most of television's history, people wouldn't dream of selling a show until they had been a writer, a TV writer for like 10, like, I don't know, seven, 10 years. It, it's not until very, very recently that, um, that people who have little to no experience writing TV can create and executive produce their own shows. Um, so anyway, um, so I, that's a very long way of saying I wrote an office spec, I think in 2006 or seven, like the last year where specs were like even remotely acceptable in a widespread way before pilots became the thing. And, um, and I got an agent off of that guy, TV agent. I was too young. I was, I think I was 21, maybe it was like bananas. Um, and I went on a year of meetings and I was too young and I just was like a twerpy 21 year old taking these meetings. And, and again, I was like, again, like at least a decade too young for these meetings. And so even though I I'd written a good script, I wasn't ready to be a TV writer. And so that agent kind of just like, um, went away. Uh, and then I, <laughs> but I still had a film agent from the same agency. And so I was writing screenplays. Eventually I got a manager, another TV agent. Eventually I got another TV agent after that. And all this time I was, um, like I was tutoring. I was 
around, I guess when I was 25, I started, I mean, no, maybe when I was like 23, 24, I started freelancing and doing internet stuff. And by the time I was like, maybe like, yeah, it was probably 24, 25. And I was like doing like tutoring after school stuff and starting to get internet stuff. And then by the time I was, I guess like 27, 28, I was working for women's websites and kind of more of like, um, a full-time capacity. Uh, and then in my late twenties, and again, I was like, I wrote like a millions, not a million, like I probably wrote a couple dozen like features pilots in this span. I'm sure I wrote like at least four or five scripts a year. Um, and I was just like busting my butt and trying. I remember my dad, God, this advice still chills me or this sentence still chills me. It's really good. And it's, it was really right on, but it's like, it's horrifying to remember it. He said to me one time, I think I was like my mid twenties, he's like, I know you're working hard kit, but are you working smart? And he was absolutely right. I was not working smart. I was just like throwing things against the wall and seeing what would stick. And I was trying to write, I was trying to write for the marketplace. I was trying to write something that would get me a job because I was so focused and fixated on the status of it all. I'm like, Oh, what it'll, what it'll be like. I, I basically was like, if I am a working writer, um, like I thought it would fix all my problems. I thought it would fix that like gaping hole inside me. And um, it's just not a great way to create art, but it is unfortunately the way I created art for a minute um, or a few minutes. Uh, and, um, but like by, as I was like kind of like getting into my late twenties, I kind of figured it out. And I, for myself, I realized I need to, the idea of like waiting to be picked and, and, and chosen was like just, uh, like a, it was just like making me like a person I didn't like very much. Um, at all. A, a person I really didn't like. I was so needy and and navel gazing, um, like in a real like Hannah Horvath on girls fashion. And again, I don't think I was as like externally toxic as that character, but like inside, I just did I did not yeah. like myself. I did not like what wanting these things was doing to me. Mm. And then I just like reframed my brain. I, I was like I. I have to look at this as, as making a contribution. Like every script is not about like selling or staffing. It is about just trying to create art that means something and that belongs in the world. And I can do that until I'm a hundred. I can do that till I die. And like, do I, do I want to be like working with like kindergartners with small bladders or working for women's websites? Like that, where I feel like I'm regurgitating like celebrity gossip, like until I'm like 85, like, no, no, I don't want that, but I can live with that. What I can't live with is like this like needy, desperate, selfish, um, monster, like envious monster. I mean, I was also just, like, so envious of other people's success in a way that like made me, un- like I just didn't, ugh. it was just so toxic and, and did not work. And then once I started looking at art as a, f- a few things, um, when art became about being generous, um, everything changed for me. I, th- I think my, I think I was a good writer before, but I don't think I wrote my truly great stuff, um, including the pilot for, it was then called Widow. Now it's, it became Sorry for Your Loss until I reframed that for myself. Um, uh, did I answer you? <laughs> I think I get these long-winded questions. It's perfect. It's so touching. And it's also incredibly validating um, for myself and I'm sure for anybody who's listening and wants to pursue these things. There is something that feels so selfish about wanting to be a writer. Um, Not just the act of it sometimes, like pulling my, like, uh, you know, pulling myself away and writing, but also just that part of my brain that is like saying, come on, you're the next Issa Rae. Go, go, go. And it, it makes me not feel like I'm creating work from my heart, but I'm creating work to get a really like specific reaction from people that is like monetary and attached to like fame and da 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 and all that stuff. And it's it's not a great place from which to work. It can be very soul sucking. I hear that. And you're not the next Easter Ray, you're the next Claire Brooks. You know what I mean? And so that that's that's the whole ball game. Not that I should be using sports metaphors here ever. That's not, <laughs> not, 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 not my zone, but, um, but, but, tr- but truly you are the next Claire Brooks. And so whatever's going to come from you couldn't come from Issa. It couldn't come from any other writer or human. It comes from you and, and your lived experience and your imagination and the moment and the, you know, but tr- truly it, it does. And I think it's, it's, it's weird. Look, I've, 
been in a lot of therapy. Some might argue too much therapy, but I truly do think like the, the more you dial down into yourself, like the deeper and deeper you get and the more you figure out about yourself, the less selfish you get, the more able you are to be, the, the more you are able to be a, a generous person in the world who's creating the things that you want to create and who's being the person you want to be, I think. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk about, sorry for your loss, because right. you are um, an example, an example of exactly the type of writer that you were talking about earlier, which is, um, you know, having a couple of credits under your belt and selling a show. Like yeah. this, this new world where like you don't have to be a 30 year seasoned vet in the TV industry to sell a show. So what does look, what does selling a show, before we get into Widows and what became Sorry for Your Loss, how does one sell a, sell a show? How does that even begin? Were you hoping to just get staffed on a show or were you always hoping to sell this? Oh, when I wrote this, oh man, I, it is still weird to me that we made two seasons of this show and maybe we'll make another season. Maybe we won't. I don't have the answer to that yet. We're, I think we're still, because we're not, we did two seasons with Facebook. They pulled out a scripted content. So we might do a third season somewhere else if, or we might not. In any event, um, I, I wrote this script because I, I had to. Like, it, basically, I, I knew that if I didn't, and, this, and I wrote this, I wrote the script in 2014, early 2014, which to give you context of, of the landscape at the time, Transparent was a pilot, but it wasn't a series yet. Like, Amazon just started to, like, test out pilots. And so the idea of, like, uh, essentially a half-hour drama that was, like, tiny and character and wasn't, like, hard jokes and you know, um, like lots of like, I don't know, like HBO, like, new, I mean, it, it wasn't like a, definitely wasn't a three jokes a page sitcom. It definitely wasn't like a, you know, a, like a super like hard HBO comedy. It was just, I mean, honestly, it was just, it was a short story. It was like, it was like a short story in the, like a half hour drama in the form of a, you know, yeah. Um, it was a short story in the form of a half hour drama is what I wanted to say. And that was just not like, a real thing that wasn't a genre or like at all viable or marketable. And so I never wrote, I did not write it to be an actual show. Like I, I really thought like maybe this will be a, a weird sample for a weird show. Like Orange is the New Black had just come out. I, I think if I'm getting my timeline right, I'm like maybe like a weird show. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like Netflix had just started making shows and I'm like maybe like a weird HBO or like a something, but I definitely, it didn't feel viable at all. I just, I, I knew what the pilot had to be. And I knew I had to write it. I don't know. I, I, I definitely didn't think we were going to actually do it, but how does one sell a show is your question. Um, well, I, I can walk you through what, what happened with, with me and that, which is I wrote this thing, even like pitching the concept to my, my manager, my agent, they were supportive, but they weren't like on fire. And I, and that was okay. I, I knew that and because no one was hearing the show by death at the time that didn't have like a hooky thing. Um, like, a, um, I'm sorry, my, my dog is being grouchy. Maybe if I let him back in, he'll stop barking in the middle of our podcast. Um, we love dogs here. <laughs> no, you're fine. I, I knew too. He's coming in the So we just, like I said, we just moved to this house, and so I still don't know. And not only do I not know where all the doors are, more to the point, he does not know where the doors are exactly yet. He's still, he's still figuring it out, man. Um, in any event, um, so I bet he's coming on the couch now, which I think means. Hi, buddy. <laughs> um, so, oh, so, um, yeah, so concept alone, like this log line, like, you know, someone loses their husband, the love of their life, they're way too young, and they're just figuring out how to live in a world that feels like it's over. Like, that just wasn't a thing that at all in 2014 felt like a, like a TV show, but I knew it was like, I, I knew it again. It's, it's hard to explain, but I, I, I both did not think that this thing was like viable at all. And I also knew I had to write it and I would be so mad at myself if I didn't, but I also knew that if I wrote it, people would see what I was seeing. Like I knew it didn't, I knew I couldn't contain it in a sentence, but I was like, again, I felt it in the marrow of my bones. And I'm like, if I like drill into my bones, like pull the marrow out and put it in this final draft document, I think people will see it. And they did. Yeah. Um, and so I was represented. I had an agent and a manager and they sent it out. They sent it out pretty wide. It, it took about a year of meetings and people mostly said the same thing, which is we love the script which is great to hear, but we don't know how to position it, which means like, oh, well, we're so excited, but we don't think a show about death or a young widow. We, we just like, we don't think people are going to want to watch this. Like they're like, 
And, and, and I would hear, every once in a while I'd hear someone be more to the point um, and say, well, I, I'm just worried it's going to be depressing or, 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 you know, like bleak and hopeless. And I, I would always ask them, do you think the pilot is depressing? And they'd say, no, no, no. It's um, funny and romantic and, and devastating. And they'd say all these things that they thought the pilot was. And I was like, well, the, the pilot is the blueprint for the series. The pilot contains the DNA of the series. So whatever you think the pilot is, that's what the series will, will be. But again, I, I was nobody. Um, and it was not a sexy idea. So even people were excited about the, the thing. They didn't, they didn't know how. They got the art of it, but they didn't know how to how to deal with the commerce of it all. And eventually I, I met with a few producers that kind of like didn't care. One in particular ended up becoming our non-writing producer that was like, oh, I'm just going to make this. Like, um, So her name is Robin Schwartz. She um, uh, at the time was with Brillstein, um, which is both a management company, also has a TV arm or TV production arm, I should say. And, uh, and now she's at Big Beach, which is, um, th they're known a lot for their films. Um, uh, they just have um, in the neighborhood. What's up? What's up? Small TV team now, though, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so they definitely have TV. One of their shows, but um, I think a lot of people who know Big Beach know them because of Little Miss Sunshine. Again, last year's Day in the Neighborhood. The year before, or a few years before, I think it was Loving. Um, in any event, um, so but yeah, but Robin was like, I have to make this. We're gonna make this. I'm making this. Um. And from there, look at Brillstein, um, Lizzie Olson, who became our star, was a client of Brillstein. Um, so the script got to her via Brillstein. Um, also, James Ponsolt, who was our producing director, was a Brillstein client. So um, once we were there, um, we were able to, again, packaging is a dirty word now, but like it, it was able to sort of be a bit of a package. Um, and then we were able to, actually, I don't think we took it out before, I think James came on forget the timeline but but James was on by the time we took it out I think or at least he was on so a few places raised their hands Showtime was one of them and so we did an original round development of Showtime he was he was attached then we all were and then um Showtime was not able to um sort of be on our timeline and we had a, a tight-ish timeline because Olsen's an Avenger and she's got a lot of Marvel commitments so um so we you know we asked for it back they gave it to us. Um, we went back out and Facebook was just opening its doors and they gave us a straight to series commitment. And there were people that had raised their hands before that were raising them again. Um, and, and talking about doing a pilot, but the idea of doing a, 10 episodes on a, a household name platform. Um, I mean, no one else was able to make an offer that, that was even close to that. So we, um, that's how so, I, I, so again, how does one sell a TV show? I don't know. I know how we sold that show. <laughs> that's a great answer. And I think that's what everyone can learn. It's different. It doesn't seem to be any um, like magic formula because there's so many elements that go into, again, I know packaging is kind of dirty, but like, let's, let's call it gift wrapping. There's so many elements <laughs> that go into gift yes. Yes. a show. And here's, here's what I will say. So nobody knows. It's, 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 um, I think it's, um, William Goldman of, of Butch Cassidy and Princess Bride fame famously said, nobody knows anything about Hollywood. It's true. N nobody knows. But, but if, if I, if I could extrapolate a lesson, I think might apply for a lot of people. I think what that script did was it got the right people excited about being a part of it. Um, and there's, um, there's a thing I've been thinking about recently. Um, I heard, um, when you're trying to sell your home, um, you take out all the family pictures, you kind of like, you dress it up, you, and, and the idea is because you don't want people to feel like, oh, you live here, I, I can't live in this house, this is Kit's house, you want people to look at this house and go, oh, I could live here, oh, I, I, I know what I would do in this living room, and, and so I think a script, I think there's some corollary or connective tissue, I think in a script, I like the idea of people looking at my script and going, oh, I can see myself living in here as a director, as a producer, as an actress, because I think people do want that ownership. And yes, you will always be as a TV, as someone who writes a pilot of TV, if it sells, you will always be the creator. You'll probably be the executive producer. Um, you might be a co-showrunner or a showrunner. Um, but, um, but people, I think, want to look at your script and, and, and get excited about the part that they could play. And I think that that's an interesting way of looking at your material is like both, yes, you want to dazzle and put on this great show, but you also want to feel exciting and inviting. I mean, I, I think 
again with Olsen, she looked at that script and she, um, she knew she had to play that part. And, and I, I, I hadn't written with an actress in mind, although I talked to her for like five minutes when I first met her and I was like, oh, I, I wrote this for you without even knowing I was writing it for you. But I think what she saw was, um, but, but, but what, what I had intended was, I didn't know who the actress was going to be, but I wanted to write her something that, um, you know, was just all encompassing that she could just eat, breathe, sleep, dream. Um, and that was, that was how she felt about the role, which is what I was hoping an actress would feel. So. Um, I think that's incredible. I can see, I can only imagine to be an actress, receive all these scripts and to find something that probably just stands out and feels like something you can sink your teeth into. There's a lot of sameness in this industry. And what I love about Sorry for Your Loss is just how emotionally different it is. And there's something very bold and daring. And I like to just, um, it's kind of a long quote, so I'll try to paraphrase it. I came across this quote on Vox. I think it's fantastic. Um, and it says, what makes Sorry for Your Loss so good is that it understands grief isn't a neat arc with a beginning and an end. It's a process of atomization. An incident happens and your whole body feels like it's engulfed in the flames of a nuclear blast. But with every passing day, it dissipates a little more and a little more. You're able to do more, to get out of bed, to resume your life, but you always live with the residue of what happened. You learn how to live with grief. You don't learn how to defeat it. Yeah. That is a remarkable quote. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's very touching to hear someone get that from your work. Um, how do you feel when you hear those words and hear how people responded to this show? Uh, a few things. I, I, I'd say my first reaction is I feel overwhelmed. Whenever people responded powerfully to the show, that powerfully, it was, it's overwhelming, but I also feel seen and known because that was, that was our intent. I don't know if I would have phrased my intent with, with that with that level of poetry and, 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 and beauty and grace, but that was my intent. Uh, that's why, and again, people would ask me like, is this a movie? And I'm like, absolutely not. There's no beginning, middle, end. I mean, well, you know, there's gonna be end at some point. We're not gonna make episodes forever and ever and ever, but this is a, a, a journey without a specific destination. And so, um, so yes, that's very, very moving. Overwhelmed and, 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 and moved, I would say, are my, my two watchwords. <laughs> You know, I find it very apt um, to, you know, to have seen the show. I rewatched a couple of episodes in the last 24 hours before our Thank chat. You. Thank you for doing your homework. I appreciate but, it. <laughs> and then, um, you know, wanted to just see how people responded to it. And I have to say, you know, what I think is most powerful about this is that grief to me is something, it can come in so many different ways. And I think there are people, myself included, who are grieving right now. They're grieving not only for the loss of, of life or loved ones, um, the potential for that to happen, but they're grieving the loss of jobs like myself. They're grieving a lifestyle that you know, maybe they dreamed of that won't be able to come to pass. People who were planning to retire, who just saw those earnings disappear overnight and are looking down, you know, the barrel of, you know, the working five more years gun. Like there, there's a lot of grief in the air today. Um, and so I just want yeah. to thank you for putting this out there because I think these feelings are very complicated and they very often don't involve a linear beginning, middle, or end. Like, I don't know where this journey we're on right now is about to go. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you brought all that up. I don't either, by the way. I, every day of my life, I'm like, I wish I had a crystal ball. I wish I was psychic. Like, I, I am, I am looking at that horizon with a lot of anxiety as well. Um, but it's interesting you, you talk about this current moment and all the anxiety because the last time, and again, this, this moment is so different than the 20, 16 election and yet the last time I remember this many people this fucking upset and scared for the future was right after the election um and I remember um um a, a friend um who has um experienced um uh, the loss of multiple loved ones saying she had never she knew what it was like to comfort an individual grieving. She knows what it's like to um, be an individual who's being comforted in her own grief, but just being surrounded by so many people grieving was overwhelming for her. And, and it was, look, it was in 2017, 2018 that we started to make the show. 2017 is when we were developing, 2018 was when, um, and I was, I remember when we were um, hiring, hiring um, 
someone to come supervise me. And uh, there was one person who responded to the script, but said that she's like, essentially she knew the script had been written before the 2016 election because she had read me for staffing before and she'd read the script. And she said, and, and I will just preface this by saying, I don't agree with her, but she said that she didn't think that a script written before 2016 was viable in, in, in a, a post, a pre-Trump script she did not believe was viable post-Trump. She's like, where, how is it political? Does it need to be political? All these things. And I said to her, I think it is political. I think, I think, I think we are making modern myths as television writers. And I think this is talking about on a very specific micro level, this is talking about one woman who feels like her world has ended and her life is over. But I think speaking on a macro level, that is the feeling a lot of people felt after 2016. I think it's what people are feeling right now to, to your point. Um, and I think there's been, and again, people who have um, articulated much better than I could, um, written articles and essays about how losing a job does how a, a, a breakup or a divorce feels like a death because there's identity, right? Your, your identity is, is wrapped up in, in your job, in your significant other. Um, and so even if there isn't a, a literal death, it still does feel like one. Um, and so I, um, and, and look, I, to, back to this, this woman, I, I think she's a tremendous writer and thinker. I respect her viewpoint, but I also thought she was looking at, um, grief in a narrow way. And, 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 and for me, the show was always meant to, to be hyper, hyper specific about this woman and, and, and her husband and his family and her family and their specific minutia. But also, um, it, it, it was supposed to speak to, um, what it feels like, again, when your world feels like it's over and you don't feel like you can function, you feel like you're fundamentally broken. Um, but your life isn't over and you, maybe you are damaged, but you are not broken beyond repair. You can, again, to, to um, paraphrase um, that Vox excerpts, which was which is so beautiful. Like you, every day you put a tiny piece of yourself back together. And, and, and there is a bit of like a two steps forward, three steps back, five steps forward, four steps back. Um, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's not a linear process, but, um, but I, th I th but I think this show about widowhood, I, I, I think, and it was certainly my experience making it, is hyper-specific to that experience and also very much supposed to be about um, both loss in general and, and resilience in general. But as a writer, how do you drill into something that's so specific when it's not specifically your lived experience? One is the show definitely started out as... Um, I described it two ways as, as a, a funhouse mirror uh, version of my life. Like I feel like I was doing a lot of like distorting and twisting, but again, I was seeing the truth on the page and on the screen. Um, another metaphor I've used is uh, for me, it felt like, um, like a matryoshka doll of truths, like a Russian nesting doll of truths, like taking one truth and hiding inside another truth and another truth and another truth until you never, you don't see like that first tiny truth that's hidden inside too many other truths. But it's still all truth. Um, also, I had a really brilliant writer's room, both seasons. Um, and so, and, and really brilliant actors and producers. And so at a certain point, it's not just my truths, it's their truths too. That, 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 that's the, um, the process of collaboration. So for example, I had, um, not to spoil things too much if people haven't seen the series, but uh, we end up dealing with clinical depression in, in, in a pretty, um, direct way in the story. And there were people in my room that had had that experience. Um, there were, um, you know, people in my room um, that talked about their experiences with, with death and losing loved ones. And that also wove its way into the fabric of our show. Um, and so, and, and, and the last thing I guess I'll say is, um, look, I think there are a lot of things as like a writer and a human where I'm like, nah, I'm like kind of mediocre at that. I like need to work hard at that like I'm constantly like looking at things I need to like work on and but one thing I think I am good at and I've always been good at is I'm I pay attention um I I, I listen and and I, and I also have a, a pretty good I think a very good memory um and so I both am 
really paying attention to the people in my life and the world around me. And I'm also filing it away in a filing cabinet that I can um, really go back to again and again and again to the, my earlier point about the, about the Russian nesting doll of truths. I'm, I'm hiding those truths in, in there as well. And so, um, uh, yeah, even though I like, again, I'm like even thinking right now, and I, I won't go into this on, on your podcast. I'm like, huh, the 19 things I wish I was better at as like a writer, a producer, a human. But, um, but I think I am thoughtful and observant and emotionally intelligent. And so even though, um, my husband is alive, uh, I think because I, I guess because of who I am emotionally and who I am as a person in a world of other people, I think I was able to fill out some of the blind spots of experience that was not lived. And then, um, again, my amazing writers and, and team directors, actors, um, filled out more of those blind spots. I, I have another question for you. Uh, you've, you have explored so many different mediums. You've mm -hmm. written plays, you've written, um, TV scripts, you've show run a, you've show run a TV show, and, um, you've also written graphic novels and comics. And I'm curious, what do you feel about this medium agnostic life? that you yeah. um and what do you say to people who say you have to pick a lane so i mean for me i, I would equate it to um, being an athlete who plays different sports um different sports that build different muscles and skills uh for example uh with writing a graphic novel um and look i've only ever written one um with my sister illustrating and she is a rock star man her visuals are beautiful and so i don't want her to have to deal with like these unwieldy um, word bubbles filled with my like chunky overwritten dialogue. So I'd like really pull back and be as spare and terse as possible to make sure that her visuals uh, get the real estate they deserve. Um, and so learning how to be a more terse writer as a, and spare writer as a graphic novelist both made my um, film and TV writing, it made it more visual because I was, I was just focusing a lot more on those visuals. And it also made me more spare in film and TV, just building that muscle. I was able to train, uh, to, um, shift that over. Um, and so I, 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 I benefit a lot from hopping from medium to medium and it's truly not like monopoly. I'm not trying to like, I'm not, I'm, I will never have an EGOT. Um, because I will never have a Grammy. <laughs> Probably not, not any of them, especially not a Grammy. You never know. You never know. <laughs> but um, but I really, I, I but I I like playing in different mediums, not because I I want to like again like conquer the Monopoly board, but just because a it's really fun. I love learning. I love learning something new. I love trying something new. Um, and I also really feel like writing in different mediums uh, makes me a stronger, better writer in every medium. And to, to your question of uh, what, what to people, what to say to people who say stay in your own lane, I, I would ask where that, where that statement is coming from. Is, is it coming from a place of someone feeling like you, well, if you want to be a screenwriter, you need to write a hundred screenplays. Okay. Well then, fair. It, it, maybe that person is saying you really need to focus on the thing you love best and put those Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours into making yourself the writer you want to be. Totally cool, fair. But if that person just feels like you can only write well in one medium, um, A, I have a hundred examples that prove that person wrong. And I also just feel like if anyone ever gives you advice from like, a, a limited place, a place where they just can't think big enough or, or, or they are uh, often, um, people will give you advice, um, kind of like limiting, um, because they're scared. Like they're saying, Oh, you should be scared to, to, to try and fail because I'm scared to try and fail. Well, you should be scared of taking a risk because I'm scared of taking a risk. And it's because again, been in a lot of therapy because people do a lot of projecting onto other people. Sometimes, especially if it's someone you love and admire, you can hear that and it can, feel like, oof, well, this person I love and admire is telling me to like, um, you know, stay in my own lane. Like, oh God, did I fuck? Is language allowed in this podcast? I'm not sure. I didn't All ask. the language is allowed. Like, did I fuck up everything by writing a play and a screenplay and a pilot or whatever? Um, but if you really, again, it might just take some time and thought and care, but if you really drill down and realize that, that at the end of the day, 
your dad or your girlfriend or your teacher or your whoever is speaking from a place of their own fear, I gotta say, you just have to like thank them for the feedback. You always thank people from the feedback, even if you want to also tell them to go fuck themselves. You don't say that. You, you say thank you for the feedback. You say it with eyes. You say it with your eyes. You say it with those sparkling eyes. Um, you thank that person for their feedback and then you throw it in the garbage. You do. Yeah. If, it, if, if, it, if, it, if it doesn't excite you and inspire you, advice should be inspiring. Advice shouldn't be limiting. And if advice doesn't like, because by the way, being alive is limiting. Living in the world is limiting. Like negotiating art and commerce is limiting. Hollywood is limiting. Like why limiting? Why would you limit yourself? I, I, I truly think advice should only be a fire under your butt. And if it doesn't feel like that, I, I don't have much use for it. Oh, that is a excellent, excellent, excellent way to like move us towards the, the end here because I, I asked that question. Yes. Coming out of grad school, I think a lot of folks listening to this might be considering grad school, considering, um, you know, putting themselves in the, these environments where, um, I'll be honest, like sometimes you're going to find those teachers who are going to be incredibly inspiring to you. And then sometimes you're going to find folks in your life, whether they be at school or work or what have you, friends, family, and they're, you're right, they're going to project and being able to decipher like what's good, good, honest feedback um, and what's not. Uh, I say do a gut check. You're right. Lighting that fire under your butt. That's what you're looking for when people are talking to you. Um, so to wrap this up, how can I not ask you, what are you reading right now? <laughs> oh, oh, some really good stuff. Um, okay. Um, okay. I just, two, two great things. Um, I just finished a a novel I would recommend to every member of the human race, every single one. I'm getting my um, <laughs> Oh, you're gonna, no, no, Claire, you're gonna love this one. Um, is Girl, Woman, Other on your radar? Um, Bernadine, it's right here. Evarista, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, it won the Booker Prize last year. Um, it's, I've never read anything like it. It's about, um, God, what is it? It, it almost feels like a novel in short stories. It's, um, a group of Black women in, the UK that um, at first it's, it's, it is unclear how they are connected, but as you read the novel, the connections become clear and it is just one of the most remarkable novels I think maybe I've read and stopped. Like, and, and I wanted to like the last five years, the last 10 years, but maybe I, I'm really over the moon for this book, man. Like I'm girl, woman, other, I'm, I'm sunk for. Um, Weather by uh, Jenny, I believe you say her name, Ophil, O-F-F-I-L-L, at least I would, because I think the other pronunciation is awful, and who wants their last name pronounced awful? Um, but Jenny Awful has written this book, this novel, it's very slim, it's 200 pages, it feels like poetry, it's about this woman, a, a wife, a mother, a sister, um, all, all three, and it's kind of... <laughs> I don't know. The world is kind of ending in this novel, but like in a very like poetic way, kind of like the world feels like it's ending now. Like it's not, there's no asteroid headed, headed for earth. There's, it's not, you know, water world. It just like feels like it's ending in like a very, like, is it, um, oh, who's the poet? Not with a bang, but with a whimper. Um, uh, oh, uh, Oh fuck! It's um. Oh, and I wish I could help you. I'm so bad at this game. It's love song of Jay Offered Proofrock. Uh, if I just look up Proofrock again, I'm using Google as my like external hard drive. Break. T. S. Eliot. It was T. S. Eliot. Um, we knew so, that. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, we, we all know now. Everyone listening to this podcast and you and me and my dog that's here right now. Um. So um. So yeah. That, that's what reading weather by by um Jenny Ophill feels like. It's, it feels like the world ending not with a bang, but with a whimper. Uh, those are, that's the book I just read. That's the book I'm reading. Um, and, and I got, I got, a st I, I ordered from Book Soup and Skylight right before it was, it was they'd shut their doors, but they were still doing um, online orders. And now um, because of Garcetti's order, um, no one's doing anything unless you are delivering food or you're a nurse um, or a gas station attendant. So, um, so there, um, maybe you saw on Instagram, maybe not, or maybe you will. I, I, I was happy. I, I had ordered some books online from LA independent bookstores before they shut down for temporarily, hopefully. Um, and now I'm just like, is there like, is that bookstore in Portland doing media mail ship, shipping? Like, is there like, is like, what, what bookstores are still like 
open and sending books out to the continental United States because I would like more books. Uh, truly, I mean, God, it's, I don't know what the world's going to look like next Saturday. I don't know what the world's going to look like in a month. It is, it is, um, it's crazy. It's minute by minute. There's like moments where I'm like, I don't even know what it's going to look like tomorrow. And I'm trying to do my best to be positive. Maybe that's what I should ask to end this is that in light of everything that's happening, like, what are you doing now? I'm so excited. Just broke my table. Um, what are you doing to stay positive through this. And if you're not, if you're just, you know what, I've had a bottle of wine and I'm just not being positive. That's okay too. <laughs> you know, this is crazy. We have not opened a bottle of wine yet. We, we do have a bunch of mostly empty pints of ice cream in the fridge. So that, that's kind of where that's been going. Um, no, it's weird. I think, okay. So it's been a week. Um, I've kind of kept things pretty normal. I was working on developing before I'm still working like assuming these the things I'm working on are, are movies and I'm kind of assuming these studios are still gonna like be around like I'm kind of and maybe that ends up being crazy maybe I'm like fuck I should have worked on my novel all those months because all these things fell apart but I'm like I'm choosing to believe that those things aren't gonna fall apart so I'm, I'm working on those things um I am listening to a lot of great music I'm doing a lot of dancing I am I am like my um ancestors and predecessors I am just I am you know, just a whirling dervish, just, just dancing to great music. Um, I'm trying to really like, and I was trying to do this last fall too in a smaller way, but when I think about somebody, I try to send them an email or a text, just reach out. Um, I used to have like a like very crippling social anxiety. Now I just have like mild to moderate social anxiety. So it, that's an upgrade. But, I used to, but truly, progress. But truly, I used to like think about someone and then my immediate thought would be like, oh, I think this person's, like, amazing, but, like, I'm so, like, like, why would that person want to hear from me? Which is, like, crazy because I want to hear from most people. So once I reframed that a little bit, I um started being a, a better um, pen pal, I guess. So I've just been kind of, like, emailing people, calling people when I think about them. Um, trying it's nice, to right? It's kind of weird. Like, it makes you think, like, like, I've been doing it as well, and I'm like, why have I not been doing this? Like, I actually, besides the fact that the world is ending, my life is very much improved these days by the amount of reaching out and honest, like, I'm lonely, I'd like to talk someone, talk to yeah. someone, behavior that I've been doing, and I am so inspired when I see other people doing the same thing. I'm like, this is great. We should be calling our friends and family all the time. What, who knew? Who knew? Really? Well, you, but you don't, you get so stuck in your pattern and your grind. You don't, you don't know these things until you get shaken out of it. So we have to be as kind and forgiving as possible to our past selves. Um, I, it's, a, it's a, the one more thing I would, I would, I would say in response to that question is I feel like I've been looking for, um, the, the beauty in moments. Like when I'm cooking now, I'm like, like, again, poached an egg for the first time today. I always thought like, Poaching was for like fancy brunch and like only real chefs could. And in fact, no, you, you can as well. Um, and like, it just felt like beautiful and tiny, like, like uh, you know, just taking this egg that was in this metal sieve and putting it in a, a, a pot of, of um, gent gently boiling water and watching it become a poached egg. Like that was just beautiful. You know, um, my husband and I walked the dogs this morning and we met a new neighbor and just, we stood our, our, our six feet apart and our, our dogs said hi. And it's like, that was a beautiful moment. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like a lot of beautiful moments have happened this week. Um, and it's not a week full of beautiful moments, but those moments were, were there. And look, here's the deal. And this is what the, the show I created is a little bit about. Like, there are no guarantees. By the way, even if this goes okay for both you and I, if like we are, um, we make, make it out of this pandemic, um, in one piece, I get hit by a bus. You could have an aneurysm. Like we don't, we don't have like a contract with the universe about how much time we have, which isn't to say you have to be like happy and grateful and positive all the time. But also knowing that if you did know that it was your last day, if you didn't know that it was your last year or whatever, um, I don't know. I, I I would be a little more, um, I guess not, not even just open, but I, I would be searching for those, those beautiful, meaningful moments. Did you ever read Our Town? Was Our, was our Town ever on your radar? 
Yeah. Yeah. I always think of that, of, um, of Emily's monologue in the third act when she is, spoiler, um, spoiler on like a 120 year old play. Um, she's a ghost. Um, she dies, uh, in childbirth. That's what happened in like 1900, whatever. Um, but she has that, she has that, that, that beautiful classic monologue, which is like, pe- do people say goodbye to everything, to the church bells, to everything in, in the small town that she's taken for granted. Um, and she says, do people even, I'm paraphrasing, um, I'm sorry, Thornton, um, but do people even realize when they're alive? And, and, and the stage manager says that the saints and poets do some. And I gotta, I gotta be honest, I feel like th- this catastrophic moment is gonna make saints and poets out of us. Thanks for listening to Hit Submit. I hope you'll join us on the next episode featuring an interview and conversation with my good friend, Jonathan Hurwitz, a TV writer based here in LA. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Who knows, maybe this can become my full-time job. And if you want to know more about myself or the podcast, you can find me on Instagram at Claire Witch Project or hit submit. Lastly, if you really dig this intro and outro music, be sure to check out Purple Planet Music. They provide royalty-free tunes for your creative project needs. 